Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, get an update from Latvia and the Baltic states, and we speak to Luke Coffey, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute on US geopolitical interests, strategy, and military support for Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 2nd of December, day 282. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dom Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Foreign Correspondent James Kilner, calling in from Riga, and Luke Coffey, Senior Fellow focusing on National Security and Defence at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Dom, can we start with you? Uh, what's the latest from Ukraine? Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. It's been another very violent day in the city of Herzon, Russian artillery there. This is according to the re- uh, regional governor. Uh, 42 attacks, 42 artillery attacks there in the last um, last 24 hours, three killed, at least seven wounded. So that uh, that barrage is still going on. They've uh, The reports that Russia is moving its forces further away on the uh, on the east bank, the left bank of the Dnipro. Remember, we talk about Talk about rivers in in terms of the direction they flow. So flowing down from the um, from the centre of the country out to the Black Sea. So the left bank is that is the area still under Russian control. But we think their forces are are pulling further away from there. That's partly because of geography and also partly um, because th- th- they are just so so close. It's just a few hundred metres in places from uh, from the other bank where Ukraine are able now to uh, to move their forces. But the the city trying to evacuate civilians is still coming under intense fire every day. Um, secondly, uh, this went up before, about four hours ago on Ukraine's foreign ministry website, a statement by Oleg Nikolenko, who's the foreign ministry spokesperson, talking about the recent threats to Ukrainian embassies and consulates. So this comes in the wake of uh, letter bombs sent to six places in Spain. This was reported yesterday, Thursday. Uh, bomb disposal in that in those uh, of those six attacks, bomb disposal experts defused a letter bomb at the U.S. embassy in Madrid. That was a detonated, uh, controlled explosion by Spanish police. But a package was also sent to Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. That was a little bit earlier. That was actually November the 24th. But since Wednesday, a number of similar devices to these have been sent to the Defence Ministry an Air Force base, a weapons manufacturer and the Ukrainian embassy, all in Spain. Um, and at the embassy, a, a security officer was slightly injured. His hands were injured. And we're told he suffered concussion as well in a, in a minor blast there. Now, 
Um, Spain's Defence Minister Margarita Robles, who was in Odessa yesterday with uh, Ukrainian counterpart opposite number Alexei Reznikov, he said the letter bombs. Sorry, she said the letter bombs would not deter Spain from supporting Ukraine's just cause, as she said it, as she put it, and said uh, what must be very clear is that none of these deliveries or any other violent action will change the clear and firm commitment of Spain, NATO countries, and the European Union to support Ukraine. So that was all. Yesterday and the preceding days, mainly involving, as I say, six attacks or six attempted attacks in Spain. But the um, the statement that went up four hours ago from Ukraine's foreign ministry said that um, after the terrorist attacks in Spain, as they're calling it, terrorist attacks in Spain, bloody packages have been sent to the embassies, Ukrainian embassies in Hungary, the Netherlands, Poland, Croatia, Italy, and the consulates general in Naples, Krakow, and Brno in the Czech Republic. Now. These packages sent today or reported today um, contained animal eyes. And Oleg Nikolenko is saying, uh, says the entrance to the ambassador's residence in the Vatican has been vandalized and the embassy in Kazakhstan has received a report of a mine attack, um, although that was later denied. Now, uh, Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs Dmitry Kaleba put out a statement. He said, we have reason to believe that a well-planned campaign of terror and intimidation of Ukrainian embassies and consulates is taking place, not being able to stop Ukraine on the diplomatic front. They are trying to intimidate us. However, I can immediately say that these attempts are useless. We will continue to work effectively for the victory of Ukraine. And uh, end of quote, Ukraine has heightened security in its uh, in its diplomatic presence. So this is, I mean, it's not insignificant. As I say, they're, they're have been injuries caused by these things. It seems fairly low-level attacks. Whether or not this is state-sponsored, it seems pretty pretty weak, um, if so. So it might just be sort of, um, I, I'm imagining, pro-Russian uh, extremists in these in these countries. But it does seem like they are, there's now a, a sort of um, reasonably sustained series of attacks to uh, Ukraine diplomatic missions around the world. Um, and uh, so, yeah, keep our eyes open for, for more of those. Just one final part um, before I before I dash off. Um, so, Mikolai Podolyak, senior advisor to President Zelensky, he said that around thirteen thousand Ukrainian troops have been killed since February the twenty fourth. He's saying uh, estimates from the general staff range between ten to thirteen thousand. He said this on um, Ukrainian Channel twenty four media output uh, media uh, outlet on Thursday. Um, President Zelensky said the official data would be made public when the right moment comes. Now, this is um, yeah. For many, we occasionally talk about casualty figures, and I say only occasionally because we just simply don't know, right? There, there's loads of figures banded around out there, and we don't we don't actually know. Um, Got to be absolutely straight up with that because it's very difficult to count, and because both sides are probably overrating it slightly. Um, however, what we do know back in June. Uh, President Zelensky said that Ukraine was losing 60 to 100 soldiers a day killed in action and around 500 people wounded in action. So those, that, was, that was, I mean, those are quite startling figures for a daily attritional rate. Um, Mark Milley, the, the US chief of the, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he recently said that about, uh, he, he was talking about the 100,000 figure, uh, referring on both sides have lost about 100,000. Ukraine's defence ministry today are saying that just over 90,000 Russians have been killed. And again, you've got to take all these figures with a with a pinch of salt. The reason I mentioned the, the Mark Milley figure is because a couple of days ago, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, she, in fact, it was on Tuesday, she made a made a statement saying that 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. She she was talking in the context of civilians and soldiers. She, she said over 20,000 civilians, this is a quote, over 20,000 civilians and 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in Ukraine, end of, end of quote. So the European Commission today has said that actually they've qualified that statement saying that she was talking about killed and injured when, when it came to the Ukrainian soldiers. Um, I'm making a point here because we constantly get bashed that oh we just we only talk about Russian casualties. It's like well we, we don't. I mean that's just simply wrong. But just just to make the point that we are not we are not glossing over the fact that there are huge losses and and great injury uh, on both sides here. Uh, we just don't know the the accurate figure. But if Ursula von der Leyen was was accurate, um, saying 100,000 casualties, the rough metric is kind of one to four. So that would suggest about 25,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed, circa 75,000, a bit more maybe, um, wounded. Those, those, those are the rough metrics. So if she's, if she's 
if we get extrapolating, she's talking about, say, 25,000. Ukraine today saying th- up to 13,000. So, yes, there's a, a difference there. I mean, clearly, 25 is almost double double the figure. But it's not it's not absolutely outrageous, um, those kind of figures. And that, that might equate to the 100,000 Mark Millie was talking about. Um, so I just wanted to, to talk about these figures only partly because we, we so rarely get any hard data, as hard as this this can be, um, but also because not mentioning it, um, we, we're constantly bashed for being just a you know a propagandist, which is you know, ripe coming from some of the people who were saying it to us. But um, yeah, we need, we try to keep a tab on these casualty figures as and when we can. Although, as I reiterate, it is extremely difficult to get any kind of real fidelity for these figures. But um, I just thought it was worth bringing that up. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Dom. Francis Darnley, can I come to you next? There's been quite a lot happening in the diplomatic sphere uh, from the US to Europe. Would you be able to talk us through what's been happening in the last few days? And then I'd be very interested, if possible, to hear Luke Coffey's thoughts on it before we go to James in Riga. So Francis Darnley. Well, thanks, David. I'll do my best. And good afternoon to our listeners around the world. In isolation, certain stories may not seem overly dramatic from this week, but piecing them together, a pattern suggestive of very high level conversations behind closed doors and some tensions among Western partners is beginning to emerge. I'll start with the biggest story of the day, which is Joe Biden using the first state visit of his presidency to demonstrate unity with France's Emmanuel Macron on Ukraine. They've had a very lavish White House dinner where both leaders vowed to continue robust support and to back Kiev during the winter months. They released a joint statement saying they're committed to holding Russia to account for, quote, widely documented documented atrocities and war crimes committed both by its regular armed forces and by its proxies. But then there's quite an interesting intervention from President Biden in in the Q&A where he said that so far he's resisted talking to Putin since the invasion, but that he would be willing to sit down with him in certain circumstances. And then he elaborated on this, uh, saying that I have no immediate plans to contact Mr. Putin. and I'm going to choose my words carefully. I am prepared to speak with Mr. Putin if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, in consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'll be happy to sit down with Putin and see what he has in mind. He hasn't done that yet. So why is this significant? Well, as I say, it does suggest that there's been a shift in the kind of backstage conversations that have been taking place where there is clearly some concern, perhaps, I think, given the timing of this and who's with him amongst the French, who feel that there should be more open dialogue with Russia, perhaps for fear of what a post-Russia, post-Putin Russia might look like, or because they are not optimistic about what this winter may look like. Of course, uh, Mr. Macron has continued to talk to Putin throughout the war, trying, in his words, to prevent escalation and to get some very concrete results. So whilst I think it's important to say that actually uh, President Biden is still being very robust here and he's saying that, you know, there's there's no there's only one way for this war to end the rational way Putin has to pull out of Ukraine, number one. But it appears he's not going to do that. He's paying a very high price for failing to do that. So as I say, he's continuing to be very robust. There is this, I think, slight tonal shift from where we were a few months ago, where it really seemed that Putin was going to be forever ostracized by the international community. And clearly there are some concerns amongst other European partners around that. Just playing into this, the Finnish Prime Minister Sanomarin on Friday offered her own brutally honest assessment of Europe's capabilities in the wake of Russia's war on Ukraine, stating bluntly in an interview that we're not strong enough, and that's a direct quote, to stand up to Moscow alone. She's currently in Australia um, as part of the ongoing conversations about joining NATO. And uh, she says, I must be very honest, brutally honest with you. Europe isn't strong enough right now. We would be in trouble without the United States. And the reason I think this is important is it's putting more and more uh, pressure on 
the United States, but on on the NATO allies more broadly, to be providing more military support entering the winter than they have been thus far. And indeed, what's quite interesting is that Joe Biden's government has approved uh, an additional $380 million sale of missiles to Finland specifically this week. So I think it's her way of sort of saying we're grateful for this, but it's also sending a signal to the rest of the European partners to be doing more, as I say. So why is this all so significant? Well, I think in short, winter has barely begun and there are already signs that certain prominent European countries and the EU itself are getting anxious. Schultz yesterday, Germany's chancellor, of course, suggested that Europe should go back to its pre-war peace order with Russia and resolve all questions of common security after the war in Ukraine if Putin is willing to renounce aggression against his neighbours. Now, as I say, I think that would be a considerable concession. Macron has made it clear that the back channels are still open and has used his dialogue with President Biden yesterday to do so. For the reasons Dominic's already talked about, European Commission uh, has tweeted some figures this week about the very high level of European casualties in their view. Now, why would you post that in the first place? I think it's trying to signal the true cost of the war in, in order to try and perhaps promote dialogue at this crucial juncture. So in these circumstances, I think one has to really think very carefully about how Western allies are viewing the prospect of winter versus the Ukrainians. I think there's every reason that the winter favours Zelensky, as I've talked about in the past. They're better equipped. They're highly motivated. And there's every reason to think that Putin's hand gets weaker over time. But politically, there is increasing evidence that some partners would rather have peace if it were to mean Ukraine surrendering Crimea, say. And for that reason, I think there are a lot of tension points for, for Ukraine at the moment. They, one could argue, and I've, I've seen this argued um, by some commentators, that it is in Zelensky's interest to try and seize Crimea first, easier said than done, of course, before taking back the rest of the country, so that he's not in a position of increased political pressure from Western allies being put on him to try and sue for peace by giving the Russians you know, Crimea. My overview, of course, is that Biden, Britain, Poland, the Baltic states, who are much more robust, have got this right. There shouldn't be any negotiations or talks until Putin has left Ukraine at the very, very least. Personally, I don't think there should be any way back for a war criminal like Putin, but that's a, a separate point. Some feel very concerned for fear of what a post-Putin Russia looks like, as I say. So a complicated picture, David, and one I apologise for going on a little bit longer than anticipated, but I think that just covers the broad spread of what's going on at the moment. And it feels like a very, very significant moment to me. The, the Teutonic paints are starting to shift ever so slightly. Well, thank you very much, Francis. There was a lot to get through there, but I thought you covered it very comprehensively. Um, Luke Coffey from the Hudson Institute, just on that, um, is there anything that Francis said you'd like to pick up on or add to? What's your view of the uh, of the Macron visit to, to the White House at the moment, for example? Well, thanks, David, for uh, having me on. Uh, I agree with what Francis said in his analysis. I think that both uh, President Biden and Macron were saying all the right things. But we haven't seen what they're saying translate into uh, policy, in my opinion. Uh, we have to start uh, wanting Ukraine to win this war more than we hope that Russia is going to lose. And this means providing the Ukrainians with the weapons they need to ensure victory on the battlefield, not just so they can defend themselves, but so they can actually win. And we see these caveats and these restrictions being placed on the types of weapon systems that we are giving uh, to Ukraine. And we have to have a, uh, a different approach to this. We have to be willing to give the Ukrainians the long-range fire systems, uh, the, the fighter jets, the more advanced air defense systems, the main battle tanks, if we want to see Ukraine win. I also agree with Francis that uh, the, 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 the coming winter is going to bring more advantages to Ukraine than to Russia. Francis mentioned the morale issue. Uh, they're also better equipped in terms of cold weather gear, winter weather equipment. Uh, and they're more importantly, they're on the front foot right now. And uh, I think as we head into the winter months uh, with the, the motivation of defending your homeland and of liberating your territory on top of the better equipment and the higher morale, I think this uh, could offer a, a, an important window of opportunity for the Ukrainians on the battlefield in the coming months. 
Thanks very much for that, Luke. We'll get into more of your recent trip to Ukraine in a minute. But can I just invite uh, James Kilner, who's uh, in Latvia, I believe. James, you're up in the Baltics. What's the latest from you? Uh, Good afternoon, David. Um, Yeah, I've been in the Baltics now in Riga specifically for about a month. Um, And I've primarily been trying to get an update on how people see the war in Ukraine and Russia from here. One story that I was interested in was about um, following up on these Russian techies, high high grade techies, and journalists who fled over the border in March after the, well, about a week or so after the initial invasion of um, Ukraine by by the Kremlin, full scale invasion, um, and initially they were they were welcomed by by, by the Latvian state, but that that seems to have changed over the last few months, um, and primarily for sort of historical, emotional and security concerns, I guess. If the the, the war in Ukraine, as it is now, and Russian aggression looks and feels very differently from the Baltics than it it does from from Britain. Um, Formerly part of the Soviet Union, the the Baltics are small countries. Um, They left the Soviet Union in 1991 when, when it collapsed, and they did so incredibly... Uh, with incredible relief. They, they suffered under Moscow's reign. Um, one of the techniques that um, uh, Moscow used to try and suppress uh, nationalism in the Baltics was to send over ethnic Russians to live there. So the, so in many ways, they, they've seen this population movement before and they are wary. And the 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 techies, the, the sort of anti-Putin, pro-Western, multilingual Russian techies and journalists that I've been meeting and talking to have said that they that they're now being hauled into uh, the Latvian security services and and given quite hardcore interrogations and and questioning about their allegiances, the allegiance to their families, whether they think Crimea should be part of Ukraine or part of Russia, all this sort of thing. And a lot of them don't expect to get their visa extended. And they're, they're preparing to move again. They move, they're disbanding their companies that they've set up in, in Latvia, and then and they're going to move overseas again. Um, and and they're frustrated. But you talk to um, the average Latvians, and they're most mostly and of, often happy to see the back of them. I was at a, 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 an Independence Day, National Day event in La, in Riga. Uh, earlier this month, and it was a torch-lit event. Thousands of people walking around the main parks in in Riga, um, and and they they told me that they were genuinely worried about the states of the of of, of their nation of, of of the independence of their nation with Russia being such aggression, and they worry that if they accepted Russians in now, they might sound fine today. Uh, they might say all the right things today, but they worry that five years down the line, um, they'll become more aggressive, they become more nationalistic, and 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 all this sort of thing. Um, and so the Latvian government is sort of acting on on feeling that they should be more heavy-handed towards Russians who who came over initially. Um, one of the things which has happened in the last month as well is that the Latvian government has said that they want schools in Latvia where a third of people count Russian as their first language, to offer only an EU language as a second foreign language after English. What this essentially does is push out Russian from schools, Russian language classes. Um, so again, that that points to a sort of increasing anti-Russian vibe, uh, which is going on in, the, in this part of the world. Um, all this is set against a huge economic pain uh, brought about by COVID and, and the war in, in, in Ukraine and energy prices. Inflation is is double what it what it's running at in the UK. So inflation in, in Latvia is about twenty two percent. Energy prices are up about two or three times, depending on on which month it is. But I don't think they're subsidised here. So uh, it's, it, you know the cost of living is really uh, getting very high. And then this week also we've had um, some senior officials in the Interior Ministry warning again, this is in, in Latvia, warning again that um, migrants have been pushed towards the border 
the Latvian Belarus border um, in an illegal hybrid warfare that we've seen from Belarus, uh, um, Belarus before, where they tried to push migrants flown in from the Middle East and South South Asia um, across the borders of Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. Uh, Latvia's, <clears throat> excuse me, put up about. Uh, it's, it's, it's got it's got a long f- fence plan to be built, about 175 kilometres. Um, this is only partly built, so they're worried that they're going to have to take various measures. Uh, before then, and uh, the Lithuanians have also co- confirmed that they're worried about a, a rise in the number of migrants heading to their border or being pushed, you know, t- towards their border uh, by the Belarus authorities. And, and they said that one one man was trapped in no man's land for a, a couple of weeks earlier this year, um, this month, and lost a leg of frostbite. It's freezing cold up here. It's snowing, etc. Um, aside from that, there was um, um, a reminder that Estonia is is training Ukrainian soldiers, and the reminder came in an unfortunate way. There was a bus crash on Saturday evening, I think it was, in treacherous conditions on the roads here in Riga, uh, near in Latvia rather, and um, I think twenty five Ukrainian soldiers were injured. They were travelling from Tallinn to Riga on a bus chartered by the. Estonian army. So that that that, that reminds us that the, the, you know there's military being trained in Estonia and Ukrainian soldiers, but also the treacherous sort of travel conditions in 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 uh, Baltic region, slowing things down. Thanks very much for that, James. Just one more question uh, to you quickly uh, before we go to uh, Luke Coffey. Uh, James, um, the Kazakh president has been in Paris, which is quite something. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about this and what it might mean? Yep, sure. Um, so uh, Kasim Jamat Tokayev was in Moscow visiting uh, Putin as soon as... He, he, won a, he won a presidential election um, earlier this month, seven-year term. The first thing he did, he flew to Kremlin to see, see Putin. And that was important because it signified that he still recognises he's got a limited wriggle, wiggle room um, in uh, between Russia and uh, the West. Now, as, as, as I've been telling this podcast for a while, the, um, the Central Asian states and South Caucasus have been drifting away from Kremlin influence since the, since, since the invasion of, of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. They've lost confidence in Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's been very, they've had some very bad temper meetings. Uh, Tokayev, et cetera, recognizes the territorial integrity of Ukraine, which has, you know, annoyed the Kremlin hugely. And Kremlin propagandists have threatened to invade Kazakhstan, which is the uh, Russia Kazakhstan borders, the single biggest continuous land border in the world. Um, so Tokayev went to an election. He goes to the Kremlin as he needs to do to show his fidelity, uh, you know, to Putin and the Kremlin. He doesn't want to annoy him too much. But then, as soon as he go, he leaves the Kremlin. He flies to Paris, which is the really interesting thing. It's the first visit by a Kazakh leader to Paris in seven years. It's seen really as a reward for um, Kazakhstan's west westward drift since the war started, since the full invasion started, and it also comes. A few weeks after Shavkat Mirziyoyev, the Uzbek president, was in Paris for his first trip um, to the French capital since I think before the COVID lockdown stuff. Um, so we're seeing a huge uptick in diplomatic activity by Paris towards Central Asia. And in general, and I'm not going to go into more details now because we a bit limited with time, my section, but in general, the EU, the US, um, and and Britain are engaging more more diplomatically, more deeply, uh, and and more business interests in Central Asia and the South Caucasus than they have done for many years. I, I think eight eight or so years, uh, and this is a reflection of the former Soviet states in Central Asia and the South Caucasus um, turning not their backs on the Kremlin and Putin, they can't do that, but certainly um, growing tired of the Kremlin and, and more wary and looking for more opportunities elsewhere. 
Thank you very much, uh, James, for that. Adding to um, a whole lot of diplomatic analysis and news that we've been covering through Francis and Luke uh, this week. So thank you, James, for joining us and look forward to hearing more of your updates from the Baltics when when you come on again. Uh, Luke Coffey, can I come to you? Thank you so much for your time today. It's really appreciated here. Just before we talk about your trip to uh, your recent trip to Ukraine, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and what you're looking at, what you've been looking at throughout this conflict, throughout this this invasion? Yeah, thank you again for having me on, David. I've been following uh, transatlantic security issues in some form or another for two decades now. I even have a bit of time spent in the UK working in the House of Commons and as a special advisor to Liam Fox when he was in the Ministry of Defense about a decade ago. And so I follow the debate uh, uh, from a UK perspective very closely, but also being here in Washington, uh, of course, I follow the debate here as well as it pertains to transatlantic security. And of course, right now, uh, Ukraine is the, uh, the the main focus. It is, uh, in my opinion, the um, the deciding factor when it comes to the future of the uh, transatlantic region. And uh, I've been a, a regular visitor to Ukraine uh, over the years. And as you mentioned, I, I just recently returned from Ukraine, uh, which was my first visit uh, since the war started and also since the pandemic. So when you were there uh, recently, where did you go and what, what did you see? Yes, it was a, it was a brief trip uh, considering the circumstances. And uh, it came around the time of the, the, the big airstrikes uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, which uh, you know really brought home the, 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 the direct impact that Russia is having. Uh, not only on the, uh, of course, the Ukrainian armed forces who are engaging with the Russian military every single minute of every single day, but also the Ukrainian civilians. Uh, we, we cannot overlook the fact that it's not the Ukrainian military that's at war with Russia. It's the Ukrainian society. Russia is attacking the society as a whole. And on this visit, uh, I, I was in Lviv for a bit of time, but pre- predominantly in Kiev. And, uh, you know, there were a few surprises, I have to say. Um, I, I was expecting a little less traffic for anyone who's been to Kiev. You know, traffic is a feature of that city. But, you know, the, the roads were full and people were continuing on with their daily lives, going about their business. Uh, so I think the resiliency of the Ukrainian people really stuck out to me. So just to sketch out the parameters of our discussion here for the rest of the podcast. Um, You're obviously calling in uh, from the US. Could you just sketch out for us, summarize for us, the interests of the United States in this invasion, in in this war? Yeah, of course. Well, I think there are three, really. Uh, One is a a set of normative interests that we have. You know, for Americans who believe in the right of self-defense, who believe in the right of secure and, and respected international borders, and who believe in the who believes in the primacy of national sovereignty, then support for Ukraine is a no-brainer. Russia is violating these three core principles uh, with its invasion of Ukraine, and I think this resonates uh, uh, strongly with with most Americans. The second, and this is probably uh, the, the most important, are the economic reasons. Uh, right now, Putin is trying to undo uh, the stability and security that the European continent has enjoyed for uh, seven or eight decades, since at least since the end of World War II. And this stability or this relative stability and security that the European continent has enjoyed has allowed for economic prosperity to take place, which has benefited America. The North Atlantic region, so North America and Europe, together account for about 45% of the world's GDP, we're each other's number one source of foreign direct investment, and we're each other's number one export partner. Uh, For example, David, 48 out of 50 American states actually export more to Europe than they do to China. And when we're exporting something, that means there's an American building something or an American providing a service, and that means an American job. And right now, President Putin is trying to undo that with his war in Eastern Europe. And then finally, uh, and this is the hard-headed blunt uh, reason, uh, Russia is an adversary. Many Americans may not see Russia as an adversary, but many Russians certainly see America as an adversary. And here we have uh, a country like Ukraine that is standing up to Russia, delivering a, a huge blow to Russia's military conventional warfare capability. And it is in our interest 
not only for those normative reasons, but those economic and those economic reasons to support Ukraine, but for the geopolitical reason that Russia is an American adversary and Ukraine is willing to fight Russia. So that's why we should be arming and supporting Ukraine in any way we can to make sure that they're victorious on the battlefield. Thank you very much for that, Luke. Um, China crept into one of your reasons there. We've spoken a lot on this podcast about the relationship between Russia and China. And we've had our China correspondent, Sophia Yan, on quite a few times to talk to us about this. What's the view from Washington about China's interest and involvement in this war? And I guess also I'm interested in, on the one hand, what do you think the view from the establishment is? And how would your characterization maybe differ differ from that? Yeah, well, this is a part of the the debate here inside Washington on on how much we should support Ukraine and how far we should go. You have certain people who say, well, the big challenge for America, the big geopolitical threat into the future is actually coming from China and the Indo-Pacific. And actually what's happening in Ukraine, what Russia's doing against Ukraine is a distraction. I think this is a very naive uh, approach, a very unsophisticated, almost lazy approach to uh, geopolitics. One only has to look at a map to see that uh, Russia and China are, are, are on the same, are two different sides of the same landmass. And geopolitically speaking, Russia and China are partners. Uh, Russia is a junior partner of, of uh, China, but they're still partners nevertheless. So we can't view these two issues, the issue of Ukraine and then the issue of, of China in isolation. We have to view them as being together. And because Russia is China's junior partner, anything we do to weaken Russia, to hurt Russia, to degrade Russia's capabilities, will at least indirectly uh, reduce uh, or, or impact China. And, and conv- also, uh, in addition to this, Russia, or excuse me, China is looking at how we support Ukraine vis-a-vis their designs that they have on Taiwan. Uh, they, they, they wonder, how might the West support Taiwan if we were to invade? And I think that uh, a stronger Ukraine, a victorious Ukraine, will indirectly also mean a stronger Taiwan. So these issues have to be viewed together. You can't just uh, neatly separate them. That's not how the world works. That's not how that, that relationship between Beijing and Moscow works. And that's certainly not how the geopolitics of the Eurasian landmass works. Well, talking about uh, geopolitics, you've, you've written in a recent article, um, just going to quote it, opposing further US support to Ukraine at this crucial moment in the conflict is geopolitical negligence. Could you talk us through why you think that? I mean, I think you've touched on it briefly, but would you summarize together your thoughts? Yeah, of course. Well, as, as Francis and I both alluded to earlier, uh, we're heading into the winter months. We're heading into a crucial point in this campaign where you have a desperate fight uh, a desperate defense taking place around Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, which actually doesn't get much media attention for some reason. I'm not quite sure why, but it's, I would say, uh, you know, close to reaching levels of Mariupol in terms of gallantry and, and, and bravery by the Ukrainian defenders. But then you have the, the successes on the battlefield in recent weeks near Kharkiv and also Kherson. And the Ukrainians are clearly now on the front foot uh, and we're heading into winter, and the morale is high in Ukraine. Uh, they have the better winter equipment, and they have, uh, they have the momentum. So at this critical point in the campaign, why would we stop the support? Why would we stop the funding? It would be uh, negligent on our part if we were to do so. Now, there's some here in, in, in Washington who say, well, We're in a lame duck session in Congress, meaning that we're in that period between the election happening and then the new Congress actually taking over early next year. So no major spending should be agreed during this lame duck session. We should wait until the new session comes into power early next year. And my response to that is Russia's invasion and military timetable is not built around the U.S. congressional timetable. But we have to look at the conditions on the ground and act responsibly that way in terms of deciding how and when we support uh, the Ukrainians. There's been a lot said, and there was a lot more said, I think, leading up to to the midterms um, about US aid to Ukraine, military and non-military. You've written about some of the myths as you see them about US aid. Could you talk us through uh, some of the most important misconceptions as you see them? 
Yeah, a big one is this notion that we're just writing blank checks to the Ukrainians. So this is a very popular talking point by those who uh, do not want to um, provide support to military support or financial support to Ukraine. Uh, it's a it's a completely uh, bogus argument. Um, the, uh, the the vast majority of the billions of dollars that the U.S. Uh, is uh, allocating for uh, the defense of Ukraine actually never leaves the United States. Uh, you know, for example, $14 billion has gone towards the replenishment of U.S. stocks of military equipment. Almost $10 billion uh, went to U.S. European Command, so it didn't go to Ukraine uh, in order to increase the U.S. military presence in Europe. Another couple billion was allocated to offset some of the energy costs as a result of the war. So when we allocate billions of dollars for weapons to Ukraine, that stays in a, an account in the United States that then the president can draw down from to, pr to purchase the weapons to then give to Ukraine. So there are no blank checks given, uh, given to Ukraine. Uh, we're not lining the pockets of oligarchs in, in Kiev. Uh, th this is just a, a, a very dangerous and, and false talking point that's used by the critics of U.S. support to, to Ukraine. Another uh, talking point you often hear is uh, there's no transparency or accountability, not enough oversight of U.S. aid to Ukraine. And th this also is false. I, I would actually argue that there's never been more accountability or transparency in place for U.S. foreign assistance than what is available for what we're giving to Ukraine. Um, take, for example, uh, the, the big uh, uh, supplemental package of $40 billion that was passed last May. That was the biggest package, to, single package to date. In that bill, 16%, and I, I, I added this up, okay? So 16% of this bill uh, focuses on accountability and transparency and reporting requirements for the executive branch to the to the U.S. Congress. In fact, there are 16 separate reporting requirements to the U.S. Congress from the Department of Defense, the Department of State, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Department of the Treasury. And uh, to date, uh, the U.S. Congress has allocated an additional 14 million dollars just for the inspectors general of these organizations to increase oversight. So there is plenty of uh, accountability and transparency when it comes to uh, the aid we are providing to Ukraine. And as I said, it's perhaps unprecedented the level of oversight that is in place. Can we just go back to the Biden administration? Um, as we said, uh, discussion about US aid to Ukraine was uh, was much talked about, much talked about here on this podcast before the midterms. Um, we've gone a little bit quiet in it since, just because it's now not seen as something which which I, th I think we need to worry about too much. But how do you see US policy and support to Ukraine developing or changing uh, for the rest of the Biden administration? I think going forward, um, we'll continue to see bipartisan support for uh, Ukraine. I think that it was a, it was a very easy way for, let's say, a Republican uh, challenger against a Democrat incumbent in some constituency in middle of middle of America to say, I'm not going to support sending our tax dollars to Ukraine anymore. Meanwhile, my opponent, the Democrat, is willing to do so. It's easy to say that on the campaign trail. Uh, but when you get into the halls of Congress and you're standing under the dome of the Capitol and you've just received the intelligence briefings and you've just received the briefings from the Department of Defense where they tell you, oh, in about one week, U.S. funding for Ukraine is going to run out. Now you need to vote yes or no to increase the funding. I think the weight of that responsibility will perhaps make you think a little differently. And I think there's a very small but vocal minority uh, that uh, is against sending aid to Ukraine. But I found that this is a very online phenomenon, uh, usually on the right of the political spectrum. I like to call them the very online right. And, and it doesn't actually resonate with middle America, where polling shows a vast majority of Americans still support arming Ukraine, providing financial support to Ukraine. I saw one poll a few weeks ago stating that 63% of Americans would be willing to pay more at the gas pump or the grocery store if it meant supporting Ukraine. And I, I travel to middle America. I see Ukrainian flags in the middle of nowhere. 
uh, in places where you, you can even get a mobile phone reception. And, and I can tell you the support is there from the American people. And I think that this will translate into Congress continuing to give the support that Ukraine needs. Now, however, I do think it might require and force the Biden administration to make the case more clearly to the American people and to Congress. Uh, with the Democrat majority in the House, Biden had a free ride. He didn't have to make the case. I think this would be a good thing if he would articulate America's interests in this conflict, both to Congress, but also to the American people, just to show some leadership on this issue. But in terms of the, the White House itself, I think we're going to see a continuation of this administration doing just enough to make it look like it's doing something just enough to make sure Ukraine doesn't lose, but not enough to make sure that Ukraine can win and win in a, in a timely manner. Well, just one more question uh, from me, Luke, before I open, open uh, you up, if that's all right, to Dom and Francis and, and James, of course, who, who are listening. Just away from Ukraine, um, we, we've obviously seen lots of interesting developments that James Kilner has been, has been covering um, in the Central Asian states. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of that extraordinary moment when Nancy Pelosi was applauded in, in Yerevan, in, in Armenia. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, just, just in the diplomatic sphere that we've sort of explored a, a little bit about? Um, what's, the US's, uh, what's happening, as you see it, and is it something the US can build on? Well, as James said, uh, Russian influence in this region is on the decline. Uh, I was in... Uh, the South Caucasus back in March, and already uh, I could feel that, you know, w- when the three-day war didn't end three days, uh, there the, the were already people thinking, hmm, maybe there's going to be a, a recalculation of our approach to Moscow. You know, as James said, th- these countries can't just completely dismiss or cut off Moscow, but they can rebalance uh, some of their foreign engagement away from Moscow and more towards, uh, you know, London, Brussels, Paris, and, and Washington, D.C. And I think that's what we're seeing slowly uh, happen. Now, I would like to, in some cases, the U.S. has taken advantage of the situation. I think some of the recent developments over uh, the Karabakh conflict and the normalization between Azerbaijan and Armenia have been very positive, coming from Secretary Blinken, coming from the U.S. State Department. I feel like we're closer to normalization between these two countries than we've been in decades. And I think part of this is Yevron and Baku recognizing that perhaps Moscow doesn't have the clout or the influence it once had in the region. They're very distracted by what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, we we have to look uh, elsewhere for uh, engagement in the region. And I think we're seeing the U.S. step up to the plate. However, I I feel like we're missing uh, other opportunities in Central Asia. No setting U.S. president has ever visited uh, Central Asia. We've had very minimal engagement at the cabinet secretary level in that region. And I feel like there's so much potential to increase cooperation on trade, on energy, on, uh, you know, other exports that we uh, we're missing an opportunity here. The one country to keep an eye on in, in this area is in this region is Turkey. I would say with Russian influence declining in the region, uh, the country that's gaining the most influence is Turkey. Of course, there's this linguistic, historical, cultural connection between these Turkic speaking countries of Central Asia and of course in Azerbaijan and the South Caucasus and, uh, and Turkey. So there's already that foundation on which Ankara can build. And you have new organizations like the Organization of Turkic States, which are bringing these countries in the region together in a more formal manner to increase economic cooperation, energy cooperation, and there's even talk about increasing security cooperation. So I think with, you know, I know we have our problems with Turkey, but with Turkey being in NATO, with a strong history of good cooperation with Turkey, I think maybe we should try to find ways to work with Ankara to advance some of our interests in this uh, region as well. Well, thank you, Luke, for all of those answers. That was fascinating. I mean, what we really wanted was a, a good deep dive, I think, in, into into US interests and to understand it better from our position all the way over here on the other side of the Atlantic. So thank you hugely. Uh, Dom, Francis and James, you've been listening to all of this. I know you've got questions. You've been messaging me. What would you like to ask, Luke? Uh, well, if I could jump in first, please. Uh, Luke, hi, Dom here. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, 
Luke, who does President Biden listen to when he's formulating his position on Ukraine? And this um, I can't imagine it's an individual, but this I would have thought is a fairly small group. What is what is their background and motivations? And can we point? Can you point to any past experiences of these people um, and decisions they've made that can tell us better how they frame their position? Thanks. Thanks, Dom. Yeah, I believe his you know, inner circle on this issue is very much uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and Secretary Blinken, uh, of course, the U.S. Secretary of State, and then uh, Secretary Austin. I do believe he keeps it at a, a small group of individuals at that very senior level. But you have to remember one thing about the Biden administration. It, it, it campaigned on and was elected on a domestic platform. If you look at you know the situation in 2016, there was huge d- domestic uh, turmoil in the United States, ranging from political divisions to the uh, pandemic to the economic consequences of the pandemic. And the Biden administration has wanted to avoid dealing with major international crises. And I think this was first illustrated with the way uh, the, 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 the collapse of the Afghan government and America's defeat and withdrawal from Kabul took place just more than a year ago. They want to pretend that these economic crises uh, don't exist. If they have to deal with them, they want to deal with them in the, uh, in, in the, in the least resourceful, intensive way possible. So they can allocate their attention and their focus on a domestic agenda. But Putin is not allowing him to do this. And, and, and we've seen over the past several months the administration having to address the situation, the war in Ukraine, in a more meaningful way. But I have no doubt in my mind if, if President Biden had a magic wand and he can make this war go away, regardless of the consequences for the Ukrainians, he probably would if it meant that he could get back to uh, the, the, the domestic issues that he is uh, really focused on. I mean, that's really interesting you say that about the, yes, how, how we want to to uh, get back to domestics. And I guess just on that, what arguments or policy positions possibly with a future China-Taiwan scenario in mind do you see being warmed up or rehearsed through this lens of the Ukraine war? And are you concerned at all? in what you're seeing? Well, I think uh, what's happening uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine has served as a very useful wake-up call, uh, not only for U.S. military planners, but also for U.S. defense industry. We are giving a lot of equipment to, to Ukraine, a lot of hardware, um, and we are realizing that perhaps uh, our defense industrial base is not as robust or capable as we might have thought it was. And had this been, let's say, an invasion of uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, uh, where the, 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 the U.S. Uh, stakes could be just as high, if not higher, then that would have been um, it, 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 it's better to work these problems out now, I would say, dealing with with Ukraine and Russia than dealing with China and Taiwan later down the road. So I think it's the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been a wake up call in that sense. But also, I think that this has opened up a very good debate in Washington on how far U.S. Uh, support and commitment should go. And let's not forget that you know, Taiwan, like Ukraine, does not have a security guarantee with the United States. There is no treaty obligation for the United States to go and defend Taiwan. And I think it's a reminder that the world is not black or white. Uh, You know, there's a huge policy space between uh, doing nothing at all and then deploying the 82nd Airborne Division to Crimea. And and I think what this invasion of Ukraine has done has really sharpened the thinking of our, of our uh, military and policy planners here in Washington. So in the event that we do see uh, China make a move on Taiwan, perhaps some of our thinking and our, uh, and, and our processes will be um, better informed and will be better prepared. Thanks. And just, just one more for me, if I, if I may. Can I take you back to the midterms, which feels like an absolute age ago, even though it's probably only, what was it, a couple of weeks? Um, we... we assessed it here as as many others did not not claiming massive credit here but the the pro the factions that were more supportive of ukraine both democrats and that that 
wing of the Republican Party did better than expected. Is that your assessment as well? And what's happened over the last few weeks um, in this in this debate, and in particular with the uh, the possibility, the suggestions, um, you, you know, the, or the numbers following Donald Trump since his announcement, uh, and any, anything that might uh, herald for the future. Yeah, thanks. Well, if, if if you think the midterms feel like a long time ago from where you are, imagine being here in in Washington. Feels like ancient history. I have to say, it's quite nice not getting a a text message every two seconds uh, telling me to vote for one candidate or the other. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, um, we we I think what we saw in the outcome of the midterm elections was the was a, a, a translation of U.S. support for Ukraine at the ballot box. Uh, like I said, Americans overwhelmingly support Ukraine. Instinctively, Americans uh, as a people, I think we like to support the underdog. And instinctively, we like to stick it to Russia if given the opportunity. It's almost in our DNA here in America for this. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised that uh, the, the candidates that, that, that were, were returned to the Congress or that won their seats for the first time were ones that will overwhelmingly um, want to continue to support Ukraine, and they may they, they may not want to support Ukraine for for Ukraine's sake. They may want to support Ukraine for America's sake because it is in America's interest that Ukraine is victorious and that Russia is weakened in this conflict. And I think uh, that we'll see some responsible uh, voting and responsible policies being pursued in the coming months by the new Congress. Thanks so much, Luke, for your for your insights. I'm, it's my turn to jump in now. I was very struck by something that you were saying on China. And I know that there's been there's said to be some concern among certain Western countries that a weakened Russia is bad because it will allow Russia or sorry, China to move into that space and to fill the vacuum, as it were. And the a weakened Russia is bad for the world because an ascendant China able to work more closely with Russia, put more pressure on Russia because of its weakened state is is destabilizing fundamentally in a more profound way than we would perhaps expect otherwise. Just wonder what your perspective was on that question. Well, I I, I do not see any uh, scenario in the foreseeable future where um, we should we should hope for a stronger Russia as some sort of counterbalance to a, a growing and resurgent China. You you do hear this argument in in Washington. I think it's hopelessly uh, ill informed and naive. Uh, Russia and China are, are partners. Russia is very dependent on China in an economic sense. Uh, in an energy exporting sense, especially as uh, European market energy markets start to decline for Russian exports, they're going to be looking more towards the east, towards China. And while we don't know it for sure, I suspect Russia is dependent on China uh, on uh, on some sort of um, you know uh, technical or I would say even munitions uh, support uh, when it comes to the the war in Ukraine. Uh, in terms of small uh, arms ammunition and perhaps even um, uh, artillery uh, rounds. Uh, this has been speculated. Nobody knows for sure. But I will also say that the, that the, the, there must be some level of coordination between Beijing and Moscow, or at least some sort of accommodation for Russia to feel safe and secure enough to deploy most of their forces from their eastern military district uh, for the fight in Ukraine uh, in a way that has never been done in history. Russia's never left its, uh, its border, its frontier with China, so empty of military forces. And the fact that Moscow feels willing to do this, in my opinion, shows that there is some uh, level of uh, at least accommodation with, with Beijing. So I, I don't see any scenario where um, we, we should be hoping for a stronger Russia in order to, to, to deal with China. As I said, I think that they're, 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 well, they're two sides of the same coin and, and literally they're two sides of the same landmass and they are, they are partners and we have to treat them as a, a problem that is together and not separately. Well, thank you 
very much, uh, Dom, Francis and James, for your time. Thank you um, so much, Luke, for responding to all of our questions, several of which obviously we hadn't put to you beforehand. Um, that's just what uh, you know has come out of our, our discussion earlier. But thank you so much for your time. We're, we've come to the end of our time together today, unfortunately. So can I just ask you all very quickly for your final thoughts? What will you be thinking about over the weekend? What will you be looking to, to write about? What are the stories that our listeners should be paying attention to over the weekend? Uh, James Kilner, why didn't you go first? I think um, a story written by Natasha, I think it was yesterday in today's paper about the Levada poll, which showed, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, support for Putin's war in Ukraine has dropped to about 25% now from around 60% in July it is a really stark highlight of a story that we've been tracking all these months about. Uh, you know, the popularity of the war drifting away from the Kremlin since mobilisation and since mothers and wives, etc., have got have seen their men get sent off to war. I will be looking at that um, over the weekend and in the future and seeing whether that manifests itself in any material, measurable way other than uh, polling numbers in, in Russia. Thanks, James. Uh, Francis Turnley. Thanks, David. I offered an explanation this time last week of the apparent cultural contradictions in Germany, a a culture that arguably cares deeply about preventing war and genocide, but one that is impeded in achieving this aim due to a sceptical approach to militarisation. And I received an interesting tweet from a listener, and I'll just uh, read it out. Francis, this is why Germany needs to be looked at within a collective voice of the EU community. No single voice can carry the whole burden of being a comprehensive wisdom of their own culture and the view of the outside environment and the vision of where to go in the future. So if they don't look at themselves in the community context, we are all part of this community. Well, I agree with that. And indeed, this is the argument for a defensive model within Europe where every nation approaches their defence strategy independently, albeit working cooperatively. But I think the important point to be made here is that this view contrasts heavily with the dream held by true believers in the European project in Brussels, who favour a far more integrative approach where wealthier countries, obviously particularly Germany and France, take head of a EU army and in real terms control the defensive strategy of Europe. True believers don't really believe in multiple voices chiming in on the strategy. They want to speak with one voice. And I'm highly sceptical of this approach for reasons that should be obvious. Had European defensive strategy been steered by its wealthiest countries, had it gathered to determine a collective response to the war, it would have been too late for Ukraine. So I would urge caution on this collective voice approach. It it sounds appealing and hard to disagree with, but the reality is potentially quite dangerous. Far better to uh, to quote uh, the philosopher J.S. Mill that Europe struck out on a great variety of paths, each leading to something valuable rather than seeking one collective voice on these matters, I think. Thank you very much, Francis. Very quickly, Dom Nichols. So very quickly, I was with the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace this week in Italy for a, a little a little pasta and some chats and stuff. He was visiting his opposite number. Um, and one of the things that, um, that he mentioned is that the, the fund, the, the European fund of about $600 billion worth at the moment, um, that is being used not to not an EU fund to uh, for humanitarian support, but actually to go out into the open market to buy stuff, um, military stuff for Ukraine is about to start getting going. So this joint coordination cell in in, in Germany that coordinates um, what is on the market, what is the request from Kiev and how much money have they got, is about to start making its decisions. So um, I'm, I'm told fairly imminently, I don't know if that's next week or, or this side of Christmas, but it's one I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And I think this will be really interesting because if this starts, if this opens up plants or 155 mil artillery plants and, and other um, heavy you know, industrial plants d- delivering the tanks and guns and, and all the rest of it um, in Europe, then that is, that is a watershed moment, I would, I would suggest. And that is indicative of the thing I've, as I've mentioned many times, been calling for for a long time, this long-term view of, of, uh, of not just the, the here and now, but the long-term security guarantees for, for Ukraine. So let's see if, um, if, the, if the purse strings are, are loosened in the next few days. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, James, Francis and Dom. Uh, Luke Coffey, as our guest, would you like the very, very final words? Thank you, David. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be keeping an eye on Belarus. Uh, I think we, there's been so much focus in the south with the success around Kursan uh, that uh, we're focused in, in that region of Ukraine. But when I was in Kiev uh, recently, uh, all anyone wanted to talk about was Belarus. Uh, it, I got the impression that it wasn't a matter of if uh, there would be another uh, attack from the north, uh, but a matter of when. And the big concern now is that uh, uh, President Putin can strong strong arm uh, Lukashenko into participating in what would be round two from the north, uh, either towards Kiev from Belarus uh, or uh, further to the west, trying to disrupt the uh, the flow of uh, of Western military goods into Ukraine from Poland. Uh, there, uh, by some accounts, about eight or nine thousand Russian troops back in Belarus. It's been reported that uh, many of the conscripts that were recently mobilized are being trained in Belarus. So I think that's one area that we need to keep a, a very close eye on. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first thirty days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.